Well, with that, we want to shift gears and uh, turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 8. Exodus chapter 8. And uh, we are this morning going to be covering Exodus 8, 9, and 10. So it's a large portion of Scripture this morning. And uh, I, didn't wanna, I wanted a little bit of time to preach this morning, and so we're not going to read the entire passage. What I'm going to uh, offer to you this morning is that I'm just going to read uh, excerpts from these different uh, passages of Scripture. And so I'd invite you to stand with me, follow along on the screen as uh, I just uh, read different portions from this passage uh, as we move forward. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, Behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will, tell, I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said, Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh. And Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. The frogs died out in all the houses, the courtyards, and the fields. They gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and on your servants and your people and into your houses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. If you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, and the herds and the flocks. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, 
Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, I will bring locusts into your country and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Our great and awesome God, we come to you as your people, the people that you have called and gathered to yourself. We look to you this morning in the pages of your scripture that you have given to us, the means by which you have primarily revealed your, your person and your nature and your character to us. So we come as a people that want to submit ourselves under your word. We do not stand in judgment of you, but we allow your word to rule and reign over us. And so I pray that you would take these words, that you would help us to have an understanding heart, eyes to see. Let us, let us gr grow through this to know you more. Pray that we would be a people who recognize your holiness, your goodness, your justice, and how you will do anything that it takes to rescue your people. So we, we come to you, we look to you, we uplift your name today, Father. Do work that only you can in our hearts and in our lives, and may your name be exalted in our midst. It's in the beautiful, glorious name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. Y'all can have a seat. Every year, the earth is struck with numerous natural disasters, from earthquakes to tornadoes, roughly a thousand of, them, a thousand of those hit the United States every year, to wildfires like the ones we see raging, that we, that we have been smelling regularly as we wake up. We see hurricanes and typhoons and tsunamis that wreak havoc. Nature produces some amazingly powerful events. And what humanity has learned every year over and over again is that we are absolutely powerless to stop these things. Right? Like, like there's literally nothing we can do. The best that we can do is, is try to maybe predict them, board up our homes, get out of town, and hope for the best. Nothing can stop the sheer power of these kind of events. We are left with the certain reality that there are forces that exist that are far beyond our control. The only question for us is, is there anything that stands behind those events? behind those forces. 
Are they merely natural and random occurrences of a world out of control? Or is there a being who can harness and wield these things for his purposes? Civilizations throughout time have long sought to attribute various domains to some idea of a pantheon of gods. The Greeks called them Zeus and Poseidon. The Romans had Neptune and Jupiter. The Norsemen had Thor and Odin. And what all these people had in common is that they saw each of these gods as maybe controlling and having exercising dominion over a specific area. They had their domain. But what they all agreed on was that certainly no one could have the power to control them all. Which is why the Hebrew Scriptures are so shocking when Yahweh comes along and declares through the prophet Isaiah, I am the Lord. There is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. In the Psalms, we read that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And today, we look at a passage that presents to us this reality of this all-powerful, sovereign God of everything. He is not limited. And we see that He has this amazing sovereign control over all the world and even human hearts. And through this passage, I think we're, we're drawn to see that God will come against anything that stands in the way to bring His people to Himself. And so as we look at this familiar passage of these plagues of Egypt, kind of this highlight that, it, that, that all people know about this, this epic story, these plagues that rain down against Egypt. As we look at these things this morning, we want to look at the power of God, but we also want to see how God interacts and relates to that which stands against Him. And so I want to run through this passage just by, by first highlighting kind of an overview or some preliminary questions that we, that we want to ask about the plagues as a whole. Then I want to walk through and just give a quick rundown of each of the plagues and highlight some, some specific aspects of them. And then I want to conclude with just what are some lessons that we can take away from a passage like this. So as we kind of look at an overview of the plagues, I think it's often asked, well, what's the nature of these events? Are these actual events? Are these just kind of naturally occurring disasters? Is this just a literary polemic against Egypt? Or are these actually miraculous displays of God's power? And there's a sense in which it is somewhat unnecessary to draw distinct lines between a, a natural occurrence and kind of a, an, a, an act of God. And certainly we can look out into the world, and many have tried to attribute just kind of naturalistic concepts to, to what they see take place. You know, certainly in the world, crazy things happen, right? Like swarms of insects occur in different places. Every 17 years, a different place, these broods of cicadas come out, and there's millions of these bugs that just take over for a little bit, and then they die off after, they, after this mating season. Then it's another 17 years before they come, come back. Even this year in Eastern Africa, there have been, there have been swarms of locusts that have been uh, plaguing the land in many ways and affecting uh, crops and, and, and harvests, even now. My wife uh, grew up in Ecuador, South America, and uh, she was telling me the story how when she was a kid, uh, that when they lived down in the coastal region, 
um, in the jungle area. One time, this, this just mass of ants came through the area. They actually had to leave for a few days while these ants just came through everywhere and just, just covered everything. She said it was incredible when they came back, like all the bugs and anything, anything there was, was eaten, and they actually, actually kind of helped them for a while. But all these ants just, just came through the area. So we see things like this that, that happen, but is it necessary to attribute just kind of normal, just routine occurrences to these plagues? You could try to do that, but you've got to be pretty flexible with the text in order to get there. Because what the text presents to us is that these plagues are divine interventions in which we see that God is specifically directing the created order to display His glory, to display His power, and to make a point. We may ask then, well, what about the order or the sequence of these plagues? Why are there ten of them? What's kind of the point of these things? Why, why gnats? You know, why you know, locusts? Why are these things used? And there have been various attempts at categorizing the different plagues and trying to present, you know, reasons why he used this or that. And what we see is that there's patterns, but there's not consistency across any of the plagues. Some of them highlight this, some of them highlight that. Some are directly, maybe specifically uh, directed against a specific Egyptian deity, much as last week Aaron highlighted uh, Hapi, the uh, kind of the goddess of, of the Nile, is likely an affront to her and her rule. Even with the frogs, the, the god of, of Haket is, is likely being confronted, but it, it's hard to make a one-to-one correlation of all the plagues with a specific Egyptian deity. But what I think we, we, we definitely see is that the plagues are rather a general polemic, a general argument, a confrontation with all Egyptian religion specifically and human rebellion broadly speaking. Some have said that, that this is really an attack on Egyptian self-sufficiency, seeking to live and find life apart from God. And so as the, the plagues progress, they confront Egypt's comfort, Egypt's economy, and then ultimately Egypt's life. And how these plagues are structured, I think, I think one of the ways that, that's pretty clear in the text is that these plagues are, are, are presented in three triads, three groups of three that culminate in the tenth and final kind of climactic plague. And just how we see that is in plagues one, four, and seven, the first of each of these three triads, we see this, this reference to this morning warning that is given, where, where, where Moses and Aaron come in the morning, and it kind of presents the, the beginning of this, this, each of these series. And then we also see this pattern in, in, in the final of each of the three series, plagues three, six, and nine, we see that there is no warning given, and the plague just comes on suddenly. And so what we see in these series is this escalation, this ramping up of what's going on. Where he, where he kind of starts with this idea of just their comfort and, and all, and then he begins to ramp it up. Where he says, I'm going to bring this against you and your people. So that's kind of how they're laid out in sequence. But then we may end up asking, well, what's the ultimate purpose of these plagues? Like, why grow through all this? If God is so powerful, why couldn't He just, like, bring them out the first time? Why all the theatrics, God, you may ask? Why, why go through all this? And I think we have to go back in order to understand that to, to what was said in, in chapter 5, verse 2. When Moses and Aaron first approach Pharaoh and they give those iconic words, let my people go. Remember how Pharaoh responded? 
He said this. He said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? He said, I don't know him. I don't know who this is. Who, who is this God that, that I should listen to him? And I believe that in the plagues, God is answering Pharaoh's question. Over and over again, when the plagues are announced, there's something like this that is said, where God says, he's doing this, so that you shall know that I am the Lord. In 717, in 8 verse 10, in chapter 8 verse 22, in chapter 9 verse 14, in chapter 9 verse 29, and in chapter 10 verse 2, that phrase or something like that is almost repeated. I'm doing this so that you will know that there's no one like me. I'm doing this so you will know that I am the God. And in the plagues, God is saying to Pharaoh, you want to know who I am? You want to know why I have authority over you? Let me show you. You think you can stand against me? Let me teach you something. And ultimately, the same question is, is, is one that we are all confronted with. Who is the Lord that, that I should obey His voice? That I should listen to Him? I don't want no God telling me what to do. And throughout this section of the narrative, it's portrayed then as this confrontation between God, between Yahweh and Pharaoh. And I think uh, something that is, is massively important to understand in how this plays out is, is, is stepping back and actually understanding kind of the Egyptian backdrop and religious uh, beliefs behind what's going on here. So hang with me here as, as, we, as we do a little Egyptian religious study here. In Egyptian thought, the Pharaoh, which ultimately stood for, for this great house, was kind of this mediating role between the, the pantheon of gods and the people. In many ways, they, they believed that, that, that the Pharaoh actually was the embodiment or the representation of the god Horus to the people. And as such, he was entrusted with the responsibility to maintain order and balance in the world. And this combines with this other important thought in Egyptian, Egyptian religion. This concept that was central to Egyptian thought was that of ma'at. M-A-A-T, this idea of ma'at. And it was this idea of, of, of order, of harmony, of kind, of kind of justice that balances everything out, truth that brings everything into order. And this concept of ma'at was personified by this goddess. It was actually viewed as the daughter of the sun god Ra. And as the, as the creation came into existence from Ra and these other gods, Ma'at was sent out to bring order and, 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 and form everything into balance. And so Pharaoh, as this God figure himself, was entrusted with the primary responsibility of maintaining Ma'at within the Egyptian world. Otherwise, things would, would, would just divulge into chaos. And his ability to do this was then believed to be rooted in the character of his heart. Did he have true justice and, and truth in his heart that could bring out harmony and order and balance into the world? You see, for Egyptians, the heart was really the foundation of all thought, of all emotion and personhood. It was the most important 
organ, so to speak. Even, even when they mummified bodies, they would oftentimes remove all the other more organs, but they would leave the heart. And that was because they believed that it was that which was going to judge you in the end. Your heart was going to be judged against this concept of ma'at, whether you had enough goodness and, and kind of virtue in your, in your life to maintain ma'at in the world. And so it kind of was this idea that spread into all the people, but Pharaoh kind of was entrusted with, with maintaining a sense of, 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 of balance in the world. And there's even these, these depictions in, in, in the, that have been found all over Egypt of this kind of ceremony of the, the weighing of the heart, as they called it where there's these scales before Anubis, the, the god of the underworld. And on one side is, is, is a heart, and the other side is this feather, which is this representation of, the, of this concept of ma'at. And basically, if your heart was, was too weighty, too heavy, could not measure up, it would throw everything out of balance, and you basically couldn't get into the underworld, into the afterlife. But if you could balance out this, this, this concept of, of, of ma'at and bring order and, and contribute to the harmony of the world, then, then you could get in. And so, I hope, are, are you tracking with me? It's this, this whole idea that, that Pharaoh was entrusted with keeping order and establishing this, all of this in the world. And so when the plagues come along, we see God directly confronting the entire belief system of Egypt God is showing Pharaoh that he has no power to maintain order. Only Yahweh can. Through these acts of chaos, what many have described as kind of acts of, of decreation, the world seems to be coming undone in these plagues. Pharaoh is seen to be powerless. His heart becomes hardened, heavy, outweighed, to where he cannot produce the order that is necessary in the world. He has no ability to bring the world into divine order. And throughout Genesis, throughout Exodus, we see that Pharaoh is, is, is meant to be this, this model or this, this archetype of the pattern of all human rebellion that sets itself against God, that seeks to establish right and wrong for themselves, that seeks to bring order into the world by their own means. And what we see in Pharaoh and in Egypt is that when they do that, that results in a world of oppression, of putting an entire nation into slavery and built on, 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 on their work. And they call that good. They call that, that, that trying to maintain this order of balance. So Pharaoh is this depiction of, of the heart of human rebellion set against God. And in this whole passage, God is coming against this whole idea, confronting Pharaoh, confronting the Egyptians, and saying, you cannot bring order into anything apart from me. God is actually proclaiming judgment against Pharaoh, that he has nothing in himself, in his heart, to actually produce the goodness that is necessary to bring about the restoration of order in the world. Yahweh creates and establishes order, and he can uncreate and then put it back in order. He has total control over these things, not Pharaoh and not the Egyptians. And the question is whether Pharaoh will recognize God's absolute control. So that's kind of the, the, the overview, kind of the backdrop to, to understand the whole narrative and kind of the central thrust. So let's take a few moments to just run through each of the plagues real quick and just kind of see some, some specific aspects of each one. 
Last week, Aaron highlighted the first plague of blood, this first of this, these series. And this, of course, was an attack against that which Egypt looked to as the source of all life, on which they depended for the stability of their entire civilization. And as they, used the, they tried to use the Nile as a means of destruction to control the Israelites through, through casting their sons into the Nile, God turns it against themselves, against the Egyptians, both in this one and in the next. The second plague is this of the unleashing of a mass of frogs coming out of the Nile River. Just this, this crazy image. As you could just see, why frogs just coming up everywhere? And really, we believe that this is, this is a direct uh, confrontation with this God concept of Haket, who is this God of fertility, who, who, could, who could grant fertility and blessing to the people. And basically, God is saying, you want fertility? Here you go. Like, like I control that, and I'm just going to produce just this mass of frogs that just comes up out of the Nile and covers everything. Could you imagine this scene? Kind of trying to crawl into bed and, and feeling that slimy goo on your feet? down there. Um, and they're just everywhere. It says they're, they're in their, their kitchens and their beds and their cooking areas, just, just everywhere. Just so many frogs. We've all had that experience where maybe you get a, a mouse in your house or something and you, you got to try to get it out. A couple of uh, years ago, my wife and I were awakened at like four in the morning to this fluttering sound in our bedroom. We're like, what is going on? And I, I, I wake up groggy, can't see anything because I don't have my glasses in. And there's a bat that gets into our bedroom and is flying around. And we're like, my wife freaks out, pulls the covers over her head. I, I have no idea what to do, so I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to get this. So I, I run out and I close the door behind me because I don't want the bat to get out in the house, which, looking back, locking your wife in a bedroom with a flying bat, not a great idea. So I run down and try to find something to, to throw over it. In the meantime, she, es- she gets out of there and, and escapes, and she's mad at me for locking her in there. And then... And then we, we go up and we can't find the thing anywhere. It's just, it's just gone. But we're not sleeping in a room that might have a bat in it. So we lock the door. We go downstairs to try to sleep on the couches and the guest bedroom for the rest of the time. Then I search the whole house, can't find the thing. Not until the next night, do I, uh, next evening, does the thing finally come out again. So I, open, I finally get to open up all the, all the doors and it finally leaves the house. But dis- like, like one bat just completely disrupted our whole, our whole day. Could you imagine frogs just everywhere? Just, just disruption, just chaos. You can't do anything. But this time, Pharaoh seems to respond. With the blood in the Nile, he kind of just turns his back, walks away, and goes into his palace. But here he actually responds and says, uh, he's starting to maybe change his tune. He says, that's enough. Okay, I get your point. Make it stop. I'll, I'll let you go. Sacrifice to your God with his fingers crossed behind his back. Rather than the frogs leaving, though... You know, as, as, as Moses responds, says they all died and the land stank. It's this declaration against Egypt. But then we see this repeated phrase where Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He goes back on his word and he will not let Israel go. This third plague shows up, the plague of gnats. Again, there's no warning with this one. It just comes upon the land. It marks the end of this first series of three there's uncertainty as to what is the specific insect that's, that's mentioned here. Uh, gnats, mosquitoes, it could have actually been lice, 
which some have, have suggested that, that potentially like having lice on the people like would make them ceremonially unclean so they couldn't even go and appeal to their gods. So basically God is like shutting down Egyptian religion and worship even, even with this plague. But this, this really attacks the comfort of the people. And with this plague, we see a highlighted detail here. With the first two plagues and even the snake staff earlier, the magicians or these, these, these ones who were alongside of Pharaoh, who also were kind of entrusted with, with helping to establish Maud in the world, they could produce the previous plagues, right? But this one, it gives us the statement that they couldn't, they couldn't do this one. And it causes them to begin to question. And they say this, this. They respond and say, this is the finger of God. Even the other Egyptians are beginning to recognize there's something going on here that is far different than anything that we know. But Pharaoh, his heart remains hardened and he refuses to change. We see then this second series of three beginning with the flies. Again, we see the reference to in the morning. And Moses gives Pharaoh a warning about this plague, but a unique aspect is added to this one. This is the first time where there's this clear distinction between the nation of Israel being protected from the plague and Egypt experiencing it. So God is going to kind of control and preserve the Israelites from this plague. But he sends just this massive swarm of flies. Like it's so annoying when you're like trying to, trying to sleep and you get like one fly in a room and it keeps like landing on your head or something, right? Can you imagine just, just a swarm of flies? You, you cannot even live. But this, with this event, we see a small indication that Pharaoh, again, might be rethinking his position. And so he offers to Moses somewhat of a compromise here. He says, hey, you can't leave, but why don't you just go and freely worship your God in the land? You know, hey, we're not going to restrict you to our our religion. Why don't you guys just go and do your thing? And Moses, in kind of this kind of joking way, basically saying, we're not taking you up on this deal, says, hey, if we do that, the Egyptians are going to be triggered and they're going to not like that and then they're going to stone us. So you got to actually let us leave. And so then Pharaoh says, okay, okay, I'll let you go, but, but just don't go very far. Yeah, I want to still control you. And so Moses warns Pharaoh, says, hey, don't go back on your word. But of course, as soon as Moses calls to God and the flies are sent off and totally removed from the land, Pharaoh hardens his heart and he will not let them go. The fifth plague comes on as this, this death of the livestock this warning is given, and we, we have no idea what kind of disease this is or if the animals just dropped over dead. But it says that the, that the animals of Egypt died while the animals of Israel were preserved. And just to note, it, it references this idea of like all the animals have died, and then you may question, well, how are there animals later on that end up dying with the hail and other things? And, and I think it's just speaking in, in hyperbole, basically saying a vast number, most of these animals of their livestock died. There was a, a god in Egypt that, that was symbolized by this bull, and likely this could be an affront and, and an attack against this, uh, this bull god within the death of the livestock. The sixth plague comes on, the last of the second series of three. Has no warning. But Aaron and Moses take soot from this kiln and they throw it in the air. So what's, what's that all about? Well, likely this is kind of the same kind of cooking ovens 
that the Israelites had to use to bake the bricks that they were, that they were forced to make in their, their subjugation and slavery. So God, in a sense, is taking this means of oppression and taking that and, and turning it back on the Egyptians. And here, we see this skin disease that breaks out on the people. These boils and, and rash, whatever it may be, comes on them. So much that the magicians, it highlights them again, who oh, apparently have been around, but it says that they can't even show up for this. So we see Pharaoh left alone trying to maintain Ma'at, trying to maintain order in this, in this world that's becoming undone. He's losing his control. He has nobody to help him in this. And yet he still has this hardened heart that will not recognize the power of Yahweh, will not relinquish any control. And in his stubborn defiance, he seems like the plague just kind of runs its course. Then we approach this last series of plagues that really begins to, to come against even the people themselves. This storm of hail. They escalate in their intensity and even in their confrontation and what's, what's uh, debated and expounded between Pharaoh and Moses. And Moses and Aaron, they meet Pharaoh and they present this warning. But here God directly confronts Pharaoh more specifically about his inability to stand against him. And he says this in chapter 9, verse 14, what we read earlier. God says, This time I will send all my plagues on you and yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you. I could have, I could have sent pestilence on all your people and you would have been cut off from the earth. Even in this, God is saying, I've been patient with you. He says, but for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people. And so he declares that tomorrow I'm going to send this storm like you have never seen. If you've lived in northern Colorado for very long, you've seen a hailstorm time to time. Maybe you've gotten your roof replaced because of hail. But nothing like this. This storm comes on with fury, with crashing. It says there's even fires coming down, this, whether that's just lightning or some other display. But it is terrifying. But what we see in this is also kind of a, a beginning to, uh, of, of the Egyptians to recognize this. Because as the Egyptians hear this warning, it says that some of them even take their, their, their livestock and themselves and they go inside and hide. They get out. They, they take shelter. Because they realize that, that when, when, when Yahweh shows up, stuff gets crazy. And so, the hail comes. It rains down on the people. And the intensity of this sign pushes Pharaoh to the point where he cries out. And we see almost this language of what seems like repentance, of turning. He says, this time I have, I have sinned against the Lord. We are wrong. He is right. Make it stop. And, and, and I'll let you go. And Moses calls out to the Lord. And we know that the storm suddenly stops. But it's clear if it wasn't before, that Pharaoh does not control order. He has no ability to bring the world into balance. 
Their gods do not bring order, but only Yahweh can harness the creation. And once again, on cue, things return to calm and Pharaoh's heart is hardened and he again refuses to let them leave. Then we see this next plague, the plague of the locusts come on. And there's a reminder here that these signs are not just for, for Egypt, for, the, for, for them, but they're also for Israel to know. He says, remember these things that I've done to Egypt so that you could tell your children, you can tell the next generation. This is not merely against them, but this is for you as well so that you will know that I am your God. And we'll see later on how quickly even Israel forgets that. So if we're tempted to think that we have it all figured out, that we know everything and judge others, there's even here a subtle reminder to always remember who God is, what He has done for His people. But these, these locusts come on and whatever was left from the storm before now gets completely destroyed and annihilated by these locusts. And again, the, 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 the Egyptians are starting to see what's going on here and they start to appeal to Pharaoh. Say, hey, what are you doing? Don't you realize that our, our whole country is already just destroyed? Like, like, give in a little, Pharaoh. Come on, re respond. They say, at least let the men go. And so Pharaoh, he, he again, you know, tries to come and bargain with God. And he asks, he says, well, well if I let you go, who, who's going to go out? And Moses says, well, all of us are. That's what God demands. All of us. And... Pharaoh then just, just kind of loses it, gets upset, and says, says, no, I still get to set the terms of how this goes down. He says, only the men can go. And so, um, that's when these locusts come on. And so, Pharaoh, again, he's got to get out of this mess, everything that's, on, that's going on. And so, again, we see this language of repentance. He says, hey, hey I've sinned. But please, just, just let, bring, let, me, let me find forgiveness and remove this plague. Take the locusts away. So we see at least in Pharaoh's response that there is a type of, of regret, a type of repentance that is not true turning to God. And the locusts are sent away. And like a broken record, we see the same thing. Pharaoh's heart is hardened and... He will not, again, let them go. Ninth plague, like the third and the sixth, just comes on with no warning. This last plague that we will look at, the plague of utter darkness that engulfs the land. And this is clearly a direct confrontation with what was viewed as kind of the greatest God, the God of Amun-Re. And this, this sun God is blacked out. And this isn't just like the darkness of nighttime with some t stars that are still twinkling, but this is utter darkness. They can't see. They can't move around. They are completely shut down. The only type of darkness I think that, that I've ever been in is, is when you get into a cave deep enough to where there is absolutely no light. You cannot see anything. Your eyes never adjust. Just utter blackness. And if you've felt that, Describes this idea of, of a darkness that could be felt. Like there's, a, there's, a, there's a point where, where you can almost just, just feel just blackness around, and this is the final plague that engulfs 
Egypt before the final tenth plague. And in this, Pharaoh finally says, okay, we've had enough. You can go. But he, again, he says, hey, you've you got to at least leave your livestock. The people can go, but leave, leave the livestock. And again, forgetting that he has nothing with which to bargain, right? Like, like Moses says, no deal. Like, we're taking everything. God has declared it. You let it all go. You don't get to control the terms of this. And Pharaoh's pride then engulfs him. His rage continues to harden his heart. And what God has declared comes true. That Pharaoh will not, even at this point, let them go. And so he declares to them, he says, get out of my presence. If I see you again, I'm going to kill you. And this is how these nine plagues unfold. We see this, this display of God. And so what, what do we learn from a passage such as this? What, what are some, some lessons that we can anchor ourselves on as, as we reflect on a passage like this? Something that seems so strange, so, so crazy, so intense. The first thing I think that we can, we can kind of plant ourselves on is this truth. That this is a reminder to us of God's judgment as a display of His goodness. You know, some may see this story and, and, and think, wow, God, aren't you kind of, a, kind of a cosmic bully here? Just pushing around these, these little humans? Kind of, a, kind of a monster here. But actually, throughout this passage, we see God's patience with human rebellion. He says to him, he says, I could have struck you, I could have wiped you out, but I raised you up to show you my power to exalt my name. And it is a good thing that God confronts evil, that He attacks and, and, and confronts human rebellion. Even now in our cultural moment, even as a nation, there's this loud cry for justice. Now we may quibble over how to define justice and, and, and what it is and, and actually how to, how to see it meted out in our, in our world, in our society, but at the end of the day, all of us have a longing to see justice carried out. No one wants to live in a world in which evil is simply overlooked. And the only way that we begin to kind of see and view the judgments of God as horrific is when we reduce God to whatever image we want Him to be and we exalt ourselves to much better than what we actually are. And God's judgment is just and His goodness then is, is married with His justice. And we see that in His commitment to confront evil and fight towards a world of righteousness. Another lesson for us, I think, in this passage is seen in this warning. This warning against the hardening of our hearts. And while this narrative is primarily about God and His sovereignty, in Pharaoh we see the embodiment of a heart that is set against God, that is unwilling to submit to His rule, unwilling to recognize His power, thinking that He knows better. Do you ever feel that tendency in your own heart, in your own patterns? We see over and over again how, how Pharaoh tries to compromise with God, to make a deal. But God is not one who we can offer anything to 
We have no power with which to bargain. God demands a total surrender to His power and to His design. There's no, there's no deal to be made. You know, with, with my kids, I'm reaching this point where, you know, I'll, I'll ask them, hey, can you guys go mow the lawn? And their response sometimes is, well, hey, if we mow the lawn, you got to like, we get ice cream, you got to give us something. And like, like we, see, we experience that with our kids, right? And sometimes we, we approach that with God. It's like, God, if, if, if I'm going to do this for you, like I need something from you, this really defined the entire Egyptian way of, way of life. They, they looked to the gods for, for those that, that, that could give them something. And if they kind of like, you know, uh, served the gods well or offered the right things, then they would get, their crops would grow and they would, they would have fertility and they would, they would have these things. But God is not like this. This should confront us all with, with our view of what, what is God to us? What do we believe God to be? For so many, any idea of God is that which we, we look to for a source of purpose and satisfaction and, and, and ultimate happiness in life. And so often in that idea, in that concept of God, of creating God in whatever image we want it to be, we often kind of demand and expect God to, to, to help us to be there, but we'd never want God to tell us anything. Who are, you, who are you to tell me anything, God? You're just supposed to be there to help me, to give me kind of what I want so that I can get my life to, to look the way that I think it should. And we see this then culminate in this other pattern that we see in Pharaoh in which he, he kind of seeks to almost turn to God just when things are falling apart, when the world is in chaos, when things are just in destruction, when he's, when he's losing control, he's like, okay, okay, I'll come to God and, you know, I'll recognize him now if he could just make it go away. And then as soon as kind of things return back to normal and this perception of control gets reestablished, then I can kind of drift back to creating my own world, seek to create ma'at on my own. And how do we approach God? Do we, do we view Him as the one who declares an absolute rule over all domains of our life? Or do we just got, want God to kind of come along and remove the difficulties, help us escape the judgments? Or do we live with a, with a fear of Him, recognizing His ultimate power and His sovereign control? We see also a warning to us against leaning on other gods. Although we, we can't necessarily associate each plague with a specific Egyptian deity, certainly this is a clear presentation of God's power over and against everything that we may look to in life for our happiness and for our stability. Every idol of our heart, every god that we seek to worship, for what it will provide me, God is saying, I am going to come hard after that. And it is good for us, for God, to confront our idols, to take those things away from us so that we, we are forced and called to look to Him, to see Him as the only means of satisfaction, the only one who can actually bring order into our lives. And for the Egyptians, you see, it, it wasn't... It wasn't that they just didn't have room for Yahweh in their, in their view. 
Certainly, they could, they could bring Yahweh alongside their whole pantheon of gods. They could, they could add, add one more. Bring it on. Another God that, that might be able to provide me something. And for so many throughout history, it's not so much the claim of Yahweh to be God that people struggle with, but more importantly, it is the exclusive claim of Yahweh to be the only God. And how often do we add God just alongside of all the other things that we look to for happiness, for life, for stability? How many, how many of us now even look to God just to, just to kind of show up and, and help this election go the way that, it, that I want it to go so that the nation I live in is going to look the way that I think is going to provide me the best opportunity? Like, like, like where do we see God ruling and reigning over all of that? Where we can actually trust Him. God confronts every idol that keeps us from coming to and knowing Him. So do we add God alongside of everything else? Or do we, do we recognize our relationship with God shapes how we view, how we interact with every other domain of our lives? And the last lesson that I think we can draw from this text is that this is a reminder that God is powerful. God is powerful and He knows how to protect and deliver His own. You see, we are continuing this narrative that shows up in this continuing story, right? We always put point back that the Bible is an unfolding narrative. This isn't just one little, little segment, but this is in, in a whole story. A story of redemptive Work that God is, is working out the promises that He has given to His people to draw a people to Himself, and He will break through whatever stands in the way of that. And in this passage, we see God in this, as a lion, a lion that is baring His teeth to confront Egypt, which ultimately stands for, for, for that entire worldly ideology, everything that stands against God and the false promises that are given to us, that give us, that present to us a better life apart from Him. And God is seen as confronting that harshly. He is fighting for His own. And don't you, don't you want someone like that on your side? Do you not want a God who will, who will come after you and show you that He alone can order and bring peace into your life. You see, God will not allow His people to be enslaved by empty gods. And as we see this unfold in even the next chapters, we're going to see this climactic event of redemption in the Passover narrative. And all of this is, is, is pointing towards this, this gospel redemption. And God alone will provide the ultimate means of deliverance for us, not based on what we do for Him, but only on what He has done. See, throughout the Scriptures, when Yahweh shows up, the creation is disturbed. It's disrupted. God alone is the one who, who sets the creation in motion, and He alone can control it. And His power over the created order is clearly seen in each and every one of these plagues. And we see this throughout Israel's history even. When Israel shows up to help Joshua as they are coming against their enemies, there's this amazing story 
Or in order to win the battle, the sun stands still for about a day. Yahweh controls those things. And so then, when we turn to our New Testament and we see this one Jesus show up, what do we see happening? We see the celestial bodies somehow guide the men to where he's born. His first miracle is the transformation of water into wine. We see him miraculously take away and heal diseases of the skin, sicknesses. He steps out and and walks on water, disrupts the created standards that we expect. And when he's in a boat with his disciples and a storm overtakes them and they are terrified by these elements that they cannot control, Jesus stands up and he says, peace be still, and the storm stops, leaving his disciples with only one response. Who is this man? That even the the wind, the waves, the elements of creation obey him. You see, in Jesus... We see this one come along who is clearly and definitively wielding the power of Yahweh. And he comes along to undo ultimately that curse that holds us in bondage and ultimately bring us into freedom, into a new exodus. He offers himself in our place, which we'll highlight next week. And He does that to overcome what is the greatest obstacle of our being with Him, our hard, rebellious hearts that are set against Him and His purposes. A heart that seeks to to order the world in my own way, declaring and defining what is good and right for myself. And in the cross, Jesus comes against that, lays down His life. These miraculous events happen. Darkness comes over the world at that time. It is clear that God is showing up in Jesus. And our hard, rebellious hearts that we see so clearly in our struggle, in our battles, we realize in this passage that, 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 that we would be totally and completely just like Pharaoh if we are left to ourselves. And many will struggle and, and, and wrestle with this idea of uh, what does it mean for God to harden his heart and, and, and did Pharaoh harden his heart and, and how, how, does God, how does that work? But God's sovereignty over your salvation is good news because left to yourself, you would have no ability in yourself to know, to recognize, and to see God for who he is. We would be abandoned just like Pharaoh. But God alone has the power through the gospel to take a hardened, stiffened heart and to soften it. As it says, to replace our stony heart with a heart of flesh, a soft heart that responds to and recognizes this God for who He is. To see Jesus as this, this, this atoning sacrifice in our place to bring us into unity and union with God. To bring order into our chaotic world. So we're left with this lingering question for all of us. Who is the Lord that we should obey His voice? Do you know Him? 
Do you submit to Him completely? Not holding anything back, not, not trying to restrict and, and, and set the terms of what that looks like for you to, to follow this God, but to say, you can have it all. You've done so much for me. You've been so patient with me. You've given me everything. The least I could do is submit everything to you. Order my life. Bring it into harmony. Bring it into, 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 into unity. Declare truth over, over every poor choice that I make on my own. God, you have it all. Or will you be like Pharaoh and have that heart that just will not submit, will not turn to him, will not, will not know him for who he truly is? Who is the Lord that we should obey his voice? How will we answer that in our own hearts and our lives every day? Let's pray to this God who is powerful and mighty to save us. Father, I love your word. I love that you are patient with us. That in all of us, we can see that we fall short, that we have a heart just like Pharaoh. Left to ourselves, we would turn away, try to, try to find our own way to order our lives, to control the chaos. But only in you can we find the way and the path to wholeness. So I pray that we would be a people who look to you, the sovereign God of all things. Let us recognize your power. Let us recognize your goodness to confront evil, to challenge our, our, our hearts that constantly want to run away. And let us be a people who seek to, to declare this truth in a world that needs you so desperately. Let us find our hope in you alone, in your sovereignty. We commit our lives into your hands knowing that you alone can hold us and keep us safe. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.